Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda, producer of today's show and director of the annual Patients as Partners U.S. program at the Conference Forum. Today's show features a talk previously delivered by Mary Stober-Murray, Associate Director for Diversity and Patient Engagement at BMS, where she discussed applying quality systems framework, structure, processes, and outcomes, to patient engagement initiatives to help create clinical development deliverables that mean industry goals while aligning with patients' needs. So hi, everybody. I'm Mary Murray. And if um, you haven't met me and you'd like to meet me later, please come up and talk to me. I'm here for both days. And tip your waitresses. Okay. (laughs) All right. So uh, unlike Stephen, I'm going to start with the key takeaways, because I like to give you the spoiler alert, tell you what to sort of be thinking about a little bit, maybe pique your interest a little bit. And and the first one is... um, you know, some of the ways we do this aren't actually intuitive, and that can be part of the difficulty in implementing it because, um, you know, your teams aren't necessarily ready for it. But you can also get people engaged quickly when something seems new. So keep that in mind. Um, as it's already been mentioned a few times, this is not, this is not a one-and-done. This is a long-time commitment. Um, and so be prepared for that. It doesn't mean that you're going to be funneling millions and millions of dollars into it consistently, but you do need to be prepared and thinking about, um, and if you're engaging with people, you're engaging with them just like any other relationship. And should a time come when that relationship has changed, be prepared for that change and prepare your partners for that change. Oh, sorry. Um, I hope I'm going to show you a few ways that you really need to be thinking about your whole organization. Too often, you know, we think about, oh, I'm in clinical research, so my partners are all here in clinical research. But there's a lot of people probably in different roles in your company that really um, can impact the way you think about your initiatives, the way you measure your initiatives, the way you design your initiatives, and who benefit potentially downstream um, from the work you do early on. So be thinking about that now and also metrics. So this is an evolving discipline, I think probably five years ago. So Ken's been here six years. This five years ago was my first time at Patients as Partners. And, you know, there's been a lot of case studies. There's been a lot of initiatives, and people, people sort of measure their initiatives. But we haven't been measuring things overall as a discipline, and that's evolving. Um, we'll hear more sessions on that here today. But um, I think I'll be able to show you some ways that the way we're thinking about metrics is evolving as well. So this is the first four-way that might look different. Um, who's involved in sort of a healthcare delivery and familiar with the quality movement that we see at, um, that's happening in the physician space and hospital space? One hand goes up. One hand. Are you guys industry or are you patients? Just say real quickly. Advocate. Hospital leadership. Sorry? Industry. So, oh, good. So meet these folks because that's actually the continuum that, um, that you're going to need. But there's only three of them in this room, and there's like 30 or more people in this room. So this is important. I think we have a lot to learn from the quality movement, especially as a discipline. Um, so I'm going to give you homework. There's a, sort of the, the grandfather of quality is a guy named Don Abedian. So when you look up his... Um, name on Google, you'll get a whole ton of stuff about quality and ways to think about quality. So that's your homework, Framer for Quality Improvement. When I was here last year, I said, we're at a point now where we need frameworks. We need to be thinking about a framework, not just these one-off initiatives, not just these study-level things, uh, which are all good. They're all wonderful, and you all deserve your bonuses. But, uh, you know, we got to go to the next step, and for that, we need a framework. So structure. 
that is, we really need to understand not just our internal structure, although that's part of it, our organizational structure, but also what's the structure out in the community, what's the provider structure, and what's the population structure. So that's, you know, what are there advocates or are there not advocates? Stephen, I had a quick question. You had an osteoporosis patient up there. Is there an osteoporosis patient advocate organization that you're aware of, specifically on osteoporosis? So that's, okay, so that's interesting because I, I thought maybe there might be some bone groups, um, but not necessarily osteoporosis specific. We see that in liver disease that um, uh, there are liver groups, but there's not necessarily groups aligned around the specific disease. So um, hypertension doesn't have an advocacy organization. Plenty of patients being treated um, for hypertension in studies too. So you might not always have an organized advocacy environment. It doesn't mean you can't engage patients. Um, so those are some of the elements around structure. And by the way, it's all dynamic. Um, process, though. Stephen talked a lot about some of the process changes they're taking. And when you're thinking about process in terms of healthcare, there's technical excellence, but there's also the interpersonal excellence. How are we, uh, Stephanie talked about it, when she sat, arrived for the clinical trial and the doctor sat her down and really treated her like a partner and responded to her questions, responded to her texts, that's all interpersonal excellence. That's a process improvement, and we can benchmark it, and we can make initiatives around it, and we can measure it. Uh, and then outcomes. I really like the way in the Parkinson's um, uh, panel earlier today, they actually started with the outcome. What's the outcome we're trying to accomplish? And then we work our way back. What process is going to be affected by that? How might we need to change the organization, the structure? So when Stephanie said, I felt hungry again, that's an outcome. And we don't know that people want that outcome until we ask them. We might be very focused on clinical outcomes, but we don't have any idea what's going to make, what's going to matter to somebody functionally, satisfaction, and then of course there's mortality. That's an important outcome too. But um, the ones that we can really influence and measure um, through our interventions in terms of quality of life are these functional and satisfaction ones. So any questions about that? Y using these as a framework uh, before we get a little further. Or is that tracking? Awesome. So I'm going to just give you a few examples now of things that we've done at BMS and how they might be falling in now to this framework. I can't say that we put the framework in place before we did these things. I think, again, it's an evolving discipline. But now thinking about them and reflecting on them, right, because we're trying to be a continuous learning organization, if we apply this framework now and think about what we've done and where it might fit in and what it's influenced, how does that influence our next initiative? Okay? So, um, so what are the, you know, structurally, I'll, when, when you're hearing these examples, think, think structurally, I'll be mentioning some job functions, some training that are new, some impact on peer support networks. These are the technical excellence things. I'm not going to go into everything, but we've, we've already seen Stephen talk about them. Was there a co-creation process to the materials you developed? Um, is the protocol now less burdensome, demonstrably less burdensome for patients? And, um, and uh, oh, you had a nice comment, Stephen. I, I wrote it down because I wanted to reference it, but I don't know what page I put it on. Anyway, <laughs> uh, when I get to that page, I'll tell you again. But. Um, Oh, you said something about a patient isn't always with us. So not everybody in our company is going to have an opportunity to be one-on-one -on -one with a patient. 
And so how do we develop them and develop opportunities and experiences for them so they can, uh, and Roz, I think, mentioned it too, in their mind have someone in that empty chair when they're making the decisions that they're making. Okay, and then outcomes. So right now we can measure on sort of satisfaction things. Um, so these are the examples. So planning to activity is a two-to-one ratio. That is so optimistic, but I put it there because I'm afraid you'll get, um, you'll get upset if I tell you it's a ten-to-one ratio. <laughs> but we, we heard about it again in the Parkinson's, um, in the Parkinson's panel all of the time that's gone into the planning and how do we get the right people in the room and how do we, um, uh, you had a question back here, how do we overcome, uh, address the compliance issues before we get started? How do we, um, you know, get the legal uh, issues out of the way? All of this goes into planning. How do we contract with the people who are going to participate? Who from my company can go? What's the ratio going to be of uh, employees to patients and caregivers, et cetera, because, you know, you've got limited size conference rooms, so who's going to fit in there and who needs to be there, but how do you make sure you can share that experience with more people? So these are just some of the steps. Um, so they're really big buckets, but really be putting much, much more time into your planning for the interaction so that you can have the most efficient interaction with your patients as possible. And then also have a plan in place. I put it into that, uh, I put interaction and follow-up in one bucket. But actually it's that follow-up that is your, is your reciprocity. We talked about this isn't just about talking to patients. This is about starting a conversation that's going to continue, that's going to evolve, that we're each going to learn from. So that be prepared for how you're going to do the follow-up. Who's going to do that follow-up? What's that going to look like? And how is that conversation going to develop over time? So this is, uh, these are some of the things we look at. Um, and now also think about, again, what's the deliverable from the interaction? What's the outcome I'm trying to get to ultimately? But what's the deliverable going to be from the interaction? And this is where you really need to work with your clinical teams, but you also need to be in your preparation talking to your patient and caregiver participants. What do you want to get out of this interaction? What should we be getting out of this interaction? So these are just a few questions, but that's when, again, on the Parkinson's panel, they talked about how much time they put into developing the questions. That's important. So again, and that would be a process improvement, technical excellence, interpersonal to, I don't know. I get a little mixed up with some of the categories, but you can see they're all sort of woven in together, but it's definitely a process piece. Um, whoops. Okay. Um, so here's another thing, explaining the protocol. So sometimes we ask people for, now this is so nice and small, I did not apply UPL principles to this slide. This is as a do not do, but uh, anyway, this is what we've got. But, um, but I put this up here because you can see on the way you're looking at it, the left is the actual sort of protocol, on the right is kind of an explanation. Explaining something in, in an understandable way doesn't actually mean fewer words, might not mean that it takes up less space. It just helps to explain some of the, the terminology that people might find in the protocol. So again, seeking patient input on a protocol um, doesn't mean you just shoot over a protocol to an advocate who says, oh, I'll get you a few patients and we'll give you feedback on it. You really have to identify those sections of the protocol not just where you want input, but where 
input from the patients will be something you can do something with, right? To somebody's point about we need to be able to get back to folks to say we didn't just gather your input, we applied what we gathered. And it doesn't mean that we can do everything that people ask for. There may be reasons, but we get back with the explanation. We were able to do this, but not that. That's going to be a stretch goal for, you know, next year or whatever. Um, so I just put that example up there. But that, again, that takes some preparation before the interaction. You need to be thinking through what are the sections of the protocol that we're going to do at this first meeting, and how do we explain these things, how do we develop the questions, etc. So this is a process example. One of the modalities, I guess, that we've um, been using for a couple of years now, and it started in the rare um, well, I shouldn't say the rare disease space, but in those diseases where we didn't have a lot of institutional knowledge, we were able, we've been able to implement a modality called a patient engagement network. But it's very similar to some of the things Stephen described and even the Parkinson's uh, example that we heard, except FDA is not, we don't have regulatory folks in here. This is um, members of the clinical team, but also patients, uh, and ad usually this, one of the, ways to um, choose a patient engagement network as an appropriate modality is because there is an organized advocacy environment around the disease, so it'll be easier to assemble the folks for it. So it's an advocate, it's some identified patients with some diverse characteristics, however you've defined diversity for your study, caregivers, and then not HCPs, but the study coordinators. And they're not, and I should also say, these are not people that are in or going to be in our particular clinical trial. Um, we're not at that stage yet, and should they want to be in the clinical trial, they would drop out of the patient engagement network. This is to really get a holistic view in front of our clinical teams of what doing this protocol would mean from the patient point of view. And they look at a lot of different things, and it's an ongoing thing. It usually starts with a face-to-face -face interaction, but we've been exploring lots of ways to do virtual interactions in between as well. So in this particular one, I was able to put the disease state on their Sjogren's. Uh, was the one we did this for. Um, and you can see, those are all the members of it. Um, now, outcomes. Again, sort of thinking about it. Um, these are just a few of the things that we learned through the pen. They were concerned there were limited numbers of patients per treatment arm. So we were able to go back, work with the clinical teams and a few more stakeholders to see could we increase the treatment arm size and what would the impact of that be. They were concerned about a lip biopsy. There's a different number of different ways, I guess, to diagnose Sjogren's. Lip biopsy is one of them, and it was in our study as a requirement. Um, but actually, it turned out that it's not something patients were already diagnosed or they maybe had gotten diagnosed uh, through an eye uh, uh, test or for lack of a better word, but they had already a different way of diagnosis. So could we use that or would we need to require this extra lip biopsy? And it turned out we didn't need to require it. So that was made optional. And then we had the, um, we had the travel issue, but it was related to the IV infusion. So it, it's not so much that we had a travel uh, intervention, we went back and looked at the reason why travel would be required, and so we were able to change the dosing, actually, and the formulation for the, for the delivering the dosing. So it went from an IV to a sub-Q, and then that made it um, something that um, patients didn't have to travel as frequently for. Um, oh, sorry. I already jumped to metrics. How am I doing on time? <laughs> There's no clock here. Um, 
anyway, so structural changes again. So we, we made we made some process changes. We also made some structural changes. But we use the pen again, not just for the protocol. But here's an example on the right of one of the uh, patient re uh, materials, patient-related materials. And you can see there's sort of a chair there, and it's a it's a beautiful um, kind of view. But the question is more around, um, you know, is this impacting your life in some way? We originally had a vendor, and, we, and it's still a vendor produces, but through the negotiation with the vendor, the vendor had done a big survey of like 300 or so patients, and they came back and said, patients are most bothered by dry eye, so all the materials should be about dryness, et cetera. And our pen, which had nine patients, said, uh-uh. So that becomes part of the internal discussion and the extended discussion with your vendors. Why do these 300 uh, have it wrong? Why do your nine have it right? But our nine had it right, so, you know. Um, you have to be able to answer that question. It's, it's not fully quantitative. It's, it's what are you getting at? And the dryness, as it turned out when we went to the pens, yes, everybody had dryness, but there were treatments for dryness. There were approaches for dryness. They could address the dryness. What they couldn't address was the fatigue that made them, of the three things they want to do in a day, be able to do two and have to every day get up and say, which two of three or four or five things do I feel well enough to do today? And how am I going to get the other ones done? That's what was important. And that was, I think somebody talked about the difference between sort of symptoms and outcomes, right? So these are the things you can learn um, through that. And by the way, so the clinical teams that are participating, right, they're learning at the same time, and then they're able to share that with their colleagues. So we're getting a structural and organizational change in terms of how ready we'll be to approach the next study. Oh, so here's one of my favorites, patient summits. How many, are there any advocacy organizations or advocates in the room? So there's Diane. Okay, lots of folks. And do you organize any regional or sort of localized um, educational opportunities or like for patient summits, lack of a better word, throughout the year, right? And do you look for sponsorship for those, right? And do you give, do you give benefits, sponsor benefits when people sponsor, like different levels of sponsor benefits? Right, you get an exhibit table, maybe a tote bag item, whatever. So my role, I don't. I'm in patient engagement, but I'm not in a philanthropic role. There's no grant giving in my group. There's we're an operational role, so I can't sponsor anything. But when somebody in the company sponsors something, I can leverage the benefits. So that becomes again extending my organizational uh, view of who my partners are. A lot of that stuff sits in commercial, the grants and philanthropy or in corporate, you know. Um, they're not traditionally your partner for clinical development. But that's, a, that's an organizational shift and a little bit of a process shift. So now we do think about what are we sponsoring, what are the benefits, is there a reason um, for us to be at the summit and say we want to leverage the exhibit table, okay. Should I send my professional exhibit team, exhibitor team that's, you know, in marketing? Maybe. I don't know. Some of you might want to do that. In my group, I'm trying to do what we talked about earlier. Everybody doesn't get an opportunity to interact with patients, and yet people in clinical development make decisions every single day that's going to impact someone's experience that they never meet. So can I send those folks to be at my table at the patient summit so they can have that one-on-one -on -one interaction? and be reflecting on it 
uh, afterwards about, I've met this person. I've got them in my chair now. I'm doing my job. What would they want me to do? Right? So again, it's an organizational development opportunity when you have folks like that going and uh, being at your table. Um, and you can think again similarly about the content and also can you leverage the fact that you've got folks there as an opportunity for an interaction. Not just necessarily there to hand out your brochures, but maybe you've got a question for patients you know, in that disease area. Uh, you know, did you, do, do you go to work every day? Uh, whatever your question might be. Can you make that a part of the interaction that those folks have when they're there talking to patients so that you get some broader insights into what, what is the day-to-day -day life of people living with this disease like and how does it hit them on really fundamental things? Are you still with me or are you like, wow, she's freaking me out. <laughs> she's going crazy. Um, not, so now I'm going to go to the least intuitive thing probably for you. Are words the only way to communicate insights? Art is really, I think, uh, uh, an invaluable tool in gathering insights from patients in a comfortable way and kind of a fun way and an engaging way but it also then becomes your tool internally for sharing those what they tell you with your wider organization. So this mural was made when we were doing some work around young adults with cancer, very underrepresented in cancer clinical trials. And so we went out and found young people who'd been in a clinical trial, like this young lady right here. Um, and we invited them in across disease areas, and we invited them in. They weren't our patients. I don't know whose clinical trial they were in. They were not in a trial at the moment, you know, they came into us. And we interviewed them on film. Uh, you know, we have about an hour of raw footage, you know, with everybody sort of answering questions about their experience. How did they come to be in a clinical trial? What was their decision-making like? Who were their support services, et cetera? But so everybody got interviewed individually. And, but that meant, you know, I had like 11 people. So that meant when you weren't the person in makeup, you know, or being interviewed, you were sitting with the rest of us, you know, in the room. And it was, it, it was at our facility. So it's, you know, corporate environment. That's kind of intimidating. So I thought, what can we do to help us bond as a group? Because I want these interviews to be intimate. I want them to come across in an intimate way. Um, and I want us to bond as a group. So we made a mural together. I went out. Anybody have a Jerry's Artorama in your town? We have one in Lawrenceville. Discount art supplies, they're awesome. Um, the size of the mural was the very important factor of would it fit in my car. This, fit, this was the biggest canvas that would fit in my car, and I was like about five feet by three feet, something like that. And a couple of hundred bucks of art supplies and some aprons, and a friend lent me some brushes. And, um, and we got up there and said, okay, we want to, with this image, we want to convey that um, that there are 50,000 young people under 40 that'll be diagnosed with cancer this year in the U.S. alone. Um, and let's put a mark on this canvas for every one of those patients so they're represented. So first I wanted them to pick a symbol that they'd been in a clinical trial and they picked a star. That's why you see some stars interspersed here. I asked what color should the star be? They said, well, we've all got different cancers. There's colors associated with those. So we'll... Um, so our stars should be colored with our cancer. So now you can see the diversity of diseases that young people can be living with. And then I said, free for all. Just put up there some images of things that are important to you. So in the bottom left, you can see the littlest bit of a triangle. That's the top of a star, but you see a sun peeking out. 
that's actually an image about fertility. That was a young one. This part makes me cry. Valerie says we're never complete until Mary's cried at patients as partners. Anyway. Um, so she was 28 when she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, just married. You know, certainly didn't anticipate this happening. Everybody in her, she was a teacher, everybody at school had the flu. She went and got tested for the flu because she was feeling run down. Everybody else got a Z-pack. She says, I got Hodgkin's lymphoma. So, um, sorry. So, this little sun peeking out is her metaphor because she was able, through her treatment, um, to have a boy. So at the time that uh, we made this mural, he was 18 months old. Yikes. So anyway, so I try not to do this, but I do it every year. Anyway, <laughs> I really, I need any therapists in the room. Anyway, so. You're nice. You're very encouraging. Okay. So there's another one up there. You can see a baby, a baby footprint. That's another one about fertility. Uh, that's another story that will make me cry. I won't go into it now. Some, some of the things, uh, there's outliving it. So that referenced for us, um, that was someone who had just come, in fact, from a, um, another group that's organized for young people with cancer. Um, and now their name is escaping. Yeah, it is. First Ascent. Thank you, TJ. Um, so she had just come back from learning to surf. And then there was somebody else. I mean, these are sort of randomly picked people who had also been a member of First Descent. So that became a part of the bonding in the room. Um, so, and then the last thing I'll tell you about this is even though we were filming all these folks, I got two minutes, even though we were filming all these folks and they sort of came in, I was able to identify um, just through sort of informal social networks in the company other young people who were BMS employees who were also cancer survivors. So they came down and joined us. And, made, and so we all made the mural together. So all of these things um, are something to think about. And so we use this mural now sometimes. The first time we used it was we put it on a postcard and it became a tote bag item at a patient summit we were at. And we asked people, draw on the back what matters to you. And they brought it to our table. So that was an interaction, brought it to our table. We were able to assemble a new mural while we were there specific to that meeting. But we got people talking and we got our folks who normally don't get that exposure to have that exposure and be thinking about it. Um, it didn't go. Right. Oh, metric slide. I'll get to that one in a minute. So this is, again, I tried to tell you that the metrics is probably the um, least, I don't want to say the least advanced. We are where we are with metrics. But there is definitely an evolution. And sometimes you just start out very quantitative. Well, how many people did we get involved? But we're going to be moving more towards um, you know, how many people of employees have been exposed, you know, to pay, have had that experience? But then how, how has that experience or the feedback or the insights we gained from that, where did that show up? Did that show up in a protocol? Did that show up in uh, patient-oriented materials, et cetera? And then finally, um, we'll be able to hopefully look at some of the other, these, uh, be able to measure how our entire organizational culture is changing, structural, remember, and, um, and what other impact are we having? on clinical trials and how are people responding through social networks. Everybody comments on stuff. So I put this out there in case you're not ready to see it. This was a Transcelerate initiative. It's also a video initiative. Just follow it on Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever. One person closer. It's another example of a larger structural piece. Um, and here's your toolbox notes. I won't go through all of them because you'll get the slides. But I think the most important one is what is your framework? How does your structure? Influence your process, influence your outcomes, influence your structure, influence your process, influence your outcomes. That's it.
Thank you for Q&A. Thank you so much. That was great. I'm Maureen Fagan. I'm from um, Brigham and Women's Hospital. I'm their executive director for the Center for Patients and Families. So we have patient advisors as well in our operations, but we also have them in research, and we are on some PCORI grants. One of the things that I'm curious about is, do you notice that there is a loyalty that happens between the patient advisors and your research scientists that either needs to be built or is built at some point? Because one of the things that I did in a framework that I created was to be able to create an iterative process around what is a research trial, how does it work, to be able to get them to understand what, why should you be bringing your A game to this? What is so important about this and what happens in clinical trials? So I'm curious if you saw the same thing happened. So, um, I don't know, I have my other colleagues in the room here. I mean, I, that's definitely a piece of it, the trust factor, and that's, I think that's where the reciprocity comes back in. We can assemble a kind of a patient advisory network that we go to with various questions um, and say, oh, we'd like, we're doing this, we'd like your feedback on this, or we'd like your you know, input on this, and then we gather it. And then we go and we talk to the clinical teams about it. Some we accept and some we don't, you know, accept. But it's really only, and I'm, I don't know, I'm, I should probably say we've been doing this all along, but it's really only this year that we really told our internal people, you need to tell me what you did with that. If I'm not in the room and it's not a patient engagement network, but it is more of a one-off kind of just question that we've gone out to them with, what did you do with it? And I need to get that back to them. And I think that's... So at the advocacy level, well, organizational, I guess, level, it's that reciprocity. Um, and then we've got a slightly different group that works on the site, clinical relationships, and that's where I think we'd, we have more bonding, potentially, opportunities with the research staff and, um, and patients, et cetera. But does that answer your question? And I'm going to have a question for you later, <laughs> so coming up to you. Go ahead. Hi, Mary. It's John Novak from Inspire. And Hi, John. Thank you for this. Um, you touched on something I actually had the pleasure of chatting with Stephanie a little bit ago about her anecdote about feeling hungry and what that meant and everyone in the room hearing that power. Um, how are there ways to better capture what that meant versus patient reported increased appetite? So in my opinion, this is where art comes into play. I'll just give you an example of what I would be thinking of there. Um, and you can all use it. And you don't have to mention me or anybody. Um, what about like a pop-up museum, right? What if we asked patients to give us an artifact of their experience with the disease? And maybe for you it would be a photograph of that meal or something like that. But something that for you meant... Um, I felt better because of this, or, or, or whatever. I felt worse because of this. But what if, what if we had patients giving us artifacts of this experience, just like you'd see in a museum, and then maybe a little bit of a patient story around it or something, and use that to um, spark a conversation? You could have those artifacts as you know, 3D at a workshop with various groups within your company, um, or you could make it something available digitally in some way for people to interact with. But to me, this is where the arts can help pull people in. It's a very unintuitive thing. Um, but the other thing about the arts is that it, um, you, don't have, you don't have to find the words sometimes. 
sometimes you can ask people, what does this image mean to you? Like if I had just shown you a star with the sun peeking out, would any of you have guessed that that was a, really an image of fertility for that person? But it makes you ask the question, why is that there? And now when I tell you, you remember the answer. So. Thanks, Mary. Hi, um, my name is Marla Jan Wexler. Um, I'm a patient and I run a lupus advocacy group called Luck Fupus. Uh, I'm familiar <laughs> with your group. <laughs> yeah. So when you're recruiting, for lack of better words, for these patient engagement networks, will you only reach out to large advocacy groups because you have a better reach, or will you work with bloggers, sole proprietors of small advocacy groups? So this is actually where we need some uh, organizational change because the intuition is, and no offense to the advocates in the room, that advocates fully represent or represent 80% of the patients that are out there. And like I said, there's a lot of diseases where there is no advocacy environment, and there's a lot of diseases where as great as the advocacy organizations are, there are people like you, people like TJ, people like Stephanie, that are really powerful advocates on your own, and you're not affiliated with an individual group, but you're still conveying maybe an unheard uh, experience. Um, because we've all got um, efficiencies, right? So, go ahead. Sorry, Diane. You can respond. I'm sure you do a lot of work with Luck Fupus. <laughs> yeah. So a few years back, um, we used photo voice techniques and had patients go out and take photos of what it's like to live with lupus. So it might have been a picture of a pair of high heels I can't wear anymore, or using an umbrella in the sun, and we have a website for it. Um, people communicated through the blog. Um, we asked people to contribute on Facebook. And we've exhibited the photos at some of our summits. And it, I just want to chime in that it really is a very impactful way for people to show what it's like to live with disease. Thanks. And I just want to, and I think that's wonderful, and I want to underline that it doesn't stop at sort of the emotional impact that something has. But when we know that for young people, fertility is on their mind when they get this diagnosis, what does our protocol say about fertility? That it may exclude, I mean, yours obviously didn't exclude women of childbearing age, right? So, so no one talked to her about fertility. So it, it, can, it, it can show a gap, but it can also show sometimes an opportunity um, as well. And even if it might exclude, um, well, I don't want to get into that, but uh, you may allow people, but then uh, protocols very often, almost I think 100% of the time, ask people to be on birth control and their partners to be on birth control. So what can we help our research coordinators do in the context of talking about the clinical trial, say, and we've got this resource to help with your fertility planning. You know, and it might be at the site level. Let's get you in. I had a guy, as a matter of fact, and you can still see these videos, by the way, on our study connect under patient stories, but one guy was a melanoma um, survivor, and, you know, he was diagnosed late uh, stage um, and wasn't, wasn't married but had a girlfriend who was 30, and so his doctor at the moment of diagnosis said, things are going to move very quickly now. I want to get you in for a fertility conversation. You might want to right now freeze your sperm. I mean, it literally happened within the diagnostic meeting. But that doesn't happen for everybody, right? It didn't happen for you, obviously. So it's not just about an emotional response. It's about how do we take that information and help our clinical teams think about, and, and our other teams think about, knowing this, what can I do better so that I have a more satisfied patient, 
a more functionally active patient, and hopefully better clinical outcomes too. Thank you. I'm done. Patients as Partners U.S. is the only conference that demonstrates how to involve patients throughout the entire medicine's development life cycle to drive greater efficiencies in clinical research. Join us for the 6th Annual Patients as Partners U.S. program on March 11th and 12th at the Wyndham Philadelphia Historic District Hotel in Philadelphia. For more information, visit www.theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.